morning, I'm Pastor Gillespie from St. John Evangelical Lutheran Church and School, Sherman Center, Random Lake, Wisconsin. Good to have you with us here today for our Congregation of Prayer, a guide for daily meditation and prayer around God's Word. It's Saturday, March 5th, 2022, and today we're going to look at tomorrow's Old Testament and Epistle readings, consider those a bit, to help us prepare to hear preaching and teaching tomorrow. Tomorrow is the first Sunday in Lent, uh, I mentioned this the other day, but it's worth reiterating today, is that the Sundays in Lent, they do take on a little bit of a Lenten character, but they are a break from the fast, so to speak. Um, and so we receive the sacrament, rejoice in each other's presence, etc. Um, so yes, it's a little bit more somber than usual, but uh, generally speaking, Sundays are the break. All right, so you can look forward to that and taking a break from all your uh, personal piety that you practice during Lent. All right, let's begin. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell, the third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Say our memory verse. Whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 27. Which reminds me, oh, that didn't go as I had planned. Uh, nope, that's not the right key. Uh, well, let's see if we can. Uh, I need to give myself a reminder to do something. I was going to actually share. Uh, I'll do this as a, a post on the website and then maybe share it out on social. Um, a question that came up in regards to worthy reception of the Lord's Supper in particular. Uh, last Sunday, we had the blessing to see uh, two of our young ladies uh, receive the Lord's Supper for the first time. Uh, but then the question was, well, what's different between that and uh, and they're not and their confirmation? Right? For most, I think for most of us, our first communion was attached to our confirmation. Um, I think probably a common tradition was to be confirmed on Palm Sunday and then to commune on um, Monday Thursday, um, or on that same Sunday, perhaps. All right. So first communion post, uh, and. But that's not actually <laughs> consistent as far as tradition um, going back throughout the history of Lutheranism, but also especially the Church Catholic. And uh, so there is a distinction. Uh, being confirmed before the congregation, confessing the faith, uh, this is salutary, it's useful, it's edifying, um, and it's actually, I think it's encouraging to see young people um, confess and promise and to remain in the Christian Church. But there, that's a, by human right, whereas the reception of the Lord's Supper is by divine command, right? So there's a distinction between the two. So making the good confession before the congregation is a useful right of the church. Um, reception of the Lord's Supper is an institution of our Lord Jesus Christ, and thus uh, worthy reception is, is bound up in actually the word of Jesus, not so much in um, the practice of instruction towards um, the human right of confirmation. So they're, they're really different. Um, Although, you know, it isn't to say that they couldn't be attached to each other, but we have to ask the question, um, you know, who is worthy and well-prepared? Those who have faith in these words, right? 
given and shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. Um, that's a much more narrow expectation, I suppose, than what we expect of the confirmands, which is a more broad expectation. So um, think of confirmation more in terms of um, a rite of passage yeah, uh, into uh, or assimilation into the Christian congregation. So moving from childhood to adulthood. Um, but we do feed our children, don't we? Even when we have rites of passage, like learning, you know, learning to drive or getting your, uh, voting for the first time in a you know state or national election, those kind of things are rites of passage. Um, but children are fed throughout, right? Fed with God's word, and then fed with His word attached to the bread and wine. All right. So worthy reception is um, not the same as being confirmed. <laughs> okay, that's a human right. Uh, but I'll post something about that and then tell you more about it. Or you can read more. Uh, there's so many questions. It's actually kind of similar to the conversation about ashes on Ash Wednesday. It came up last night at a, um, a little staff get-together. And <laughs> it's like, well, the, the inst- there is no institution of the uh, imposition of ashes in God's word. So it's completely by human right. That doesn't mean we can't do it. And we can't even do it in a formal or corporate way. The problem is, is that in the scriptures... The, the gospel for Ash Wednesday says, don't disfigure yourself and make a public show of your prayers. All right. So that's one problem. The second problem is um, that ashes are never given, they're never used in the scripture, um, imposed upon others. It's always an act of personal piety. Um, so if people want to um, put an ash, ashen cross on their forehead, they should be free to do that. Um, but to make it a part of the uh, corporate practice of the church, um, because, you know, with all of its attached, I guess, with what we call peer pressure, um, yeah, that's not helpful. That's not helpful. And frankly, even confirmation should not be something that is imposed upon everyone, even if it's an expectation. Um, there are those who won't ever be confirmed in the church. For example, those who are um, disabled, you know, mentally disabled. That doesn't say they're any less of a Christian, right? Okay, so um, similar kind of thing with ashes. Confirmation is uh, by human right. It doesn't mean it's not edifying and useful, just like the ashes can be edifying and useful, uh, but to impose that upon everyone is... Um, is to command what God has not. Just a whole nother conversation. All right. Uh, let's see. So, worthy reception. Faith in these words, right? We'll confess that in a bit. Psalm 148. 148. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise him in the heights. Praise him, all his angels. Praise him, all his hosts. Praise him, sun and moon. Praise him, all you shining stars. Praise him, you highest heavens and you waters above the heavens. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for he commanded, and they were created, and he established them forever and ever. He gave a decree, and it shall not pass away. Praise the Lord from the earth, you great sea creatures and all deeps, fire and hail, snow and mist, stormy wind fulfilling his word, mountains and all hills, fruit trees and all cedars, beasts and all livestock, creeping things and flying birds, kings of the earth and all peoples, princes and all rulers of the earth, young men and maidens together, old men and children. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for his name alone is exalted. His majesty is above earth and heaven. He has raised up a horn for his people. Praise for all his saints. For the people of Israel who are near to him, praise the Lord. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. All right. Uh, We didn't do any consideration of the psalm last week, I think. I don't I don't think we had opportunity to actually talk about the psalm at the end of the week, uh, but I like to do that, and I like to use this book from Father Patrick Henry Reardon, 
called Christ in the Psalms. Uh, it's really one of the best meditations on the Psalms um, that I've found. Um, certainly, I, I, I haven't found one from a Lutheran who does as well. Uh, that's something that maybe, uh, well, maybe we could encourage one of some of our scholars to write. Um, it's, it's just a lovely work. Even uh, my friend Chad Bird, who wrote a book called Unveiling Mercy, which works through Hebrew terms. I think he has, oh yeah, the um, I think he has a book on Christ, yeah, the Christ key I'm looking up there, uh, which deals with the Psalms as well. Even he recommends this book. So there you go. All right. So it is the universal custom of the church to pray the last three of the Psalms, 148, 49, 50, um, as a unit during Matins. In the West, they traditionally follow the day appointed psalmody and the Old Testament canticle. All of these components joined with a single antiphon. In the East, where they are chanted with a separate antiphon, which goes, let everything that breathes praise the Lord, and finished with special stichera for each day. I don't know what that is. These three psalms come immediately prior to the great doxology at the end of the service of Matins. In both instances, Psalms 148 through 150 form a sort of climax to the psalmody, which is exactly how they function in the Psalter themselves or itself. Psalm 148 is a summons directed to all creation to praise God. It's constantly repeated exhortation being Allelu, praise ye. Right? In structure and imagery, Psalm 148 has great affinities to the Greek form of the hymn of the three young men in the fiery furnace in Daniel 3, verses 52 through 90, which is apocryphal, but we include it. We actually sing it on uh, Holy Saturday. And in the Western litur- liturgical tradition, this latter is very often and always on Sundays, the Old Testament canticle immediately preceding the psalm itself. All right. Um, one of the things to note here is that the expectation of Father Reardon is that uh, churches of the West, um, are, that would be one, we would be included in that, would be praying matins before we'd have our divine service. All right. Uh, and I've talked about this before, but um, it would be a lovely thing to reintroduce is to have an earlier prayer service and then take a break. Um, and gather together and, and greet one another and whatnot, and then um, continue into the service of the word, right, as a separate service. Um, but I, I imagine that if we did that, most people would come only for one or the other rather than come for the, you know, full meal deal. So there you go. Mm, it's something I've done on Easter Sunday. Maybe we'll do it on Easter Sunday this year so you can experience that. Have matins out in the, oh, I talked about this last year maybe. Have matins in the cemetery in the morning, Right. Um, for sunrise and then come and maybe have, you know, a little uh, Easter uh, snacks <laughs> and then have divine service. Okay. So those of you uh, in leadership listening, uh, think about maybe doing, we may do that for Easter here this year. Psalm 148 is calling on all creation to praise the Lord. also follows much the same sequence as the fiery song in Daniel. Heaven, sun, moon, stars, angels, waters above the heavens, followed by various elements and formations of the earth, etc. A similar sequence is found in other biblical poetry, such as Job chapter 28 and Sirach chapter 43. That's apocryphal as well. The general format for this sequence is derived, of course, from the created order of Gen- in Genesis 1. Indeed, the doctrine of creation is precisely the reason given for the praise. Let them praise the name of the Lord... For he spoke, and they came to be. He gave command, and they were created. He established them forever and ever. He decreed his precept, and it will not pass away. One may pray the psalm then, as Genesis 1 adapted to the form of praise. 
So uh, a psalm of praise that follows creation. But we are not simply Jews, and this praise must be properly Christian. That is to say, it must be a prayer firmly anchored in the fullness of time, the full Christian faith, most particularly faith in the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. Except for his resurrection, after all, the whole created world is subjected to futility, held in bondage and corruption, Romans 8, uh, 20 and 21. See also Luke 4. It is only in Christ that the created order is put right and set on the path to transfiguration. When in this psalm we summon the whole created order to praise God, we are eliciting a spirit-given impulse that lies already at the heart of the world. Quote, for the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. Romans 8 verse 19. Such a consideration makes Psalm 148 especially appropriate for Sunday, which is at once the first day of creation and, quote, the eighth day of the new creation inaugurated by the resurrection of our Lord. Truly, the Lord being praised in each verse of the psalm is the risen Jesus, whose victory over death constitutes the final vindication of the created order itself. In short, all Christian consideration of the created world will instinctively regard it through the properly defining lens of the resurrection. Right? This is really, really an important point that he's making. All right? That we can't understand even creation apart, apart from Jesus, namely the resurrection of Jesus or our role or our place in creation, what's going on in this world, what's happening, okay? So um, this is another way to say this is the cross um, is the interpretive key to understand everything that is happening to you, to this in this world, etc. Okay? If the whole world of spirit and matter is called upon to join in a common praise of God, this praise is concentrated in the church, which is explicitly spoken of in the Psalm's final lines. Right, you see him right there, verse 13 and following. This is the song for all his saints, the children of Israel, the people who draw near to him. In the church, creation itself finds its destiny and proper form through the resurrection of Christ. Quote, for by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible. All things were created through him and for him, and in him all things consist, and he is the head of the body of the church. Colossians 1, verses 16 through 18. Right? So again, the church in the church, creation finds its destiny in proper form through the resurrection of Christ. Consequently, the more ample measure of this psalm is perhaps the, quote, sign of the childbearing woman who appears in the heavens, for it is her forces that engage that old serpentine foe of the whole created world. See Revelation 12, so the battle between the woman and the serpent in Revelation 12. All right. So should the moon then be admonished to acclaim the Lord? Doubtless so. For on the moon she abides who bears the Messiah. And should the sun be summoned uh, to an outburst of blessing? Without question. For with the luster of the sun is that lady invested. And the stars, will they be included in the heavenly song? Surely so. For the stars form the crown that gar- garlands her brow. This is all Revelation 12. Prefigured and modeled on the very mother of Jesus, Mary, she is that new Eve who appears in history as the last and finest of all that God has made. It is her voice finally that fills all creation with the praise of God. Right? So I think he's suggesting that the childbearing woman of Revelation 12 is not prefigured by Mary, but is, is actually um, all creation giving birth um, to the sons of, revealing of the sons of God, right? And to the new heavens and new earth, which is an interesting idea.
All right, so you can't understand the creation apart from Christ's resurrection. <laughs> Chew on that today. Think that one through. See how that goes. All right. Moving along then, our uh, Old Testament reading tomorrow, speaking of the serpentine beast, is uh, from Genesis chapter 3. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, God, has God indeed said, you shall not eat of any tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat of it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, Where are you? So he said, I heard your voice in the midst of the garden, or the voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Hold on one second. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten up from the tree of which I commanded you that you should not eat? Good question. The man said, the woman whom you gave to me or gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, scroll up here. Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception and in pain uh, you shall bring forth children. You shall de- your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Then to Adam he said, Because you have heeded the voice of your wife, and have eaten from the tree which I, of which I have commanded you, saying, You shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. And Adam called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. Also for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made, I don't know why there's space there, tunics of skin and clothed them. All right. So, famous reading. Uh, I had ESV in my head, so New King James here was throwing me off a bit. But um, this is, you know, of course, the text that establishes for us the the origin of sin, right? Or as we uh, call it doctrinally, original sin, right? Original sin. Now, um, the Augsburg Confession uh, refers to original sin, of course, and says this. It is also taught among us that since the fall of Adam, right? So who gets the blame here? Adam. 
All men who are born according to the course of nature are conceived and born in sin. That is, all men are full of evil lust and inclinations from their mother's wombs and are unable by nature to have true fear of God and true faith in God. Moreover, this inborn sickness and hereditary sin, hereditary as in what? Um, it used to be, well, the German here is Erbzunde, Erbzunde, the, the, the uh, yeah, Erb, uh, to be hereditary. So hereditary sin is truly sin and condemns to the eternal wrath of God all those who are not born again through baptism in the Holy Spirit. Rejected in this connection are the Pelagians and others who deny that original sin is sin, for they hold that natural man is made righteous by his own powers and thus disparaging the sufferings and merit of Christ. All right. Now, in the Apology, which is um, the defense of the Augsburg Confession um, to what Rome had con- Rome responded. I don't think Rome actually had a problem. Well, let's see what Melanchthon says here. The opponents, meaning Rome, approve Article 2, original sin, but <laughs> they criticize our definition of original sin. Here at the very outset, His Imperial Majesty will see that the authors of the confutation, the Roman response, are lacking not only in judgment, but also in honesty. E calling them liars. Hmm. While we wanted simply to describe what original sin includes, they viciously misinterpret and distort a statement that has nothing wrong in it. They say that being without fear of God and faith is actual guilt, and therefore they deny that it is original guilt. These nibble or quibbles have obviously come from the schools and not from the emperor's council. This sophistry, you know, arguing in circles kind of thing, is easy to refute. But to show all good men that our teaching on this point is not absurd, we ask them first to look at the German text of the Confession. This will exonerate us of the charge of innovation, for it says, quote, It is also taught that since the fall of Adam, all men who are born according to the course of nature are conceived and born in sin. That is, all men are full of evil lust and inclination from their mother's wombs and are unable by nature to have true fear of God or true faith in God. So, straight up quote. This passage testifies that in those who are born according to the flesh, we deny the existence not only of actual fear and trust in God, but also the, of the possibility and gift to produce it. Hmm. This is key. <laughs> People miss this. Not only are we confessing that you're born um, born without fear and trust in God, but you're also born without the possibility or the ability to produce it. Fear and trust, right? We say that anyone born in this way has concupiscence, that's the Roman word, um, and cannot produce the true fear and trust in God. Concupiscence we use as a synonym for original sin here. What is wrong with this? This explanation should be enough for any unprejudiced man. In this sense, the Latin definition denies that human nature has the gift and capacity to produce the fear and trust of God, and it denies that adults actually produce it. When we use the term concupiscence, we do not mean only its acts or fruits, right, sins, if you like, but the continual inclination of nature, right? Original sin is by nature. Later on, we will show at length that our definition agrees with the traditional one. First, though, we must show why we use the words here. Our scholastic opponents admit that concupiscence is so-called material element of original sin. Hence, it belongs in the definition, especially now when so many philosophize about it irreligiously. <laughs> All right. We don't have to worry too much about that. There are some who claim that original sin is not some vice or corruption in human nature, but only the subjection to mortality that Adam's descendants bear because of his guilt, without any evil of their own. 
right? So this is the whole idea that people are born um, mostly okay, right? Um, and that it's just because there's, there's only death in the world because of Adam, but that we don't actually bear any of that guilt ourselves, right? They go on to say that it is not that one is not condemned to eternal death because of original sin, but like a child born of a slave is in this condition because of his mother, one's mother and not of one's own fault. To show our disagreement with this evil doctrine, we made mention of concupiscence. With the best intentions, we named it and explained it as a disease since human nature is born full of corruption and faults. All right, so I've done this too for people. Original sin is the disease. Sins, right, that we've committed with thoughts, words, and deeds are uh, symptoms of the disease. All right, so let's get to where they talk about um, Genesis 3. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I have to skip ahead quite a bit because it's all this conversation about concupiscence. Concupiscence, concupiscence. All right. Dun, 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 dun. There it is. All right. So, when Luther wanted to show the magnitude of original sin and of human weakness, he taught that the remnants of original sin in man are not in their nature neutral but they need the grace of Christ to be forgiven and the Holy Spirit to be mortified, right? So we need forgiveness not just for sins, but for that sinful nature, right? The old Adam needs to be put to death. Sounds like Luther? Yep, it is. Although the scholastic minimize both sin and and penalty when they teach that man can only obey the commandments of God by his own powers, Genesis, to our point here, describes another penalty for original sin. There, human nature is subjected not only to death and other physical ills, but also to the rule of the devil. For there, this fearful sentence is pronounced. Genesis 3, verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. Right? So it's more than just like some kind of guilt and death, but actually, because of our sin, we have now, we now have made, uh, we now have another mortal enemy, right? Who is the devil. The deficiency and concupiscence are sin as well as the penalty, death, and other physical ills, and the tyranny of the devil are, in the precise sense, penalties. Human nature is enslaved and held prisoner by the devil, who deludes it with wicked opinions and errors and incites it to all kinds of sins. So we're going to see this all tomorrow uh, with our gospel lesson from Matthew 4, Jesus being tempted in the wilderness by the devil. But... To that point, just as the devil cannot be conquered without Christ's help, so we cannot buy our way out of slavery by ourselves. World history itself shows the great power of the devil's rule. Blasphemy and wicked doctrines fill the world, and by these bonds the devil has enthralled those who are wise and righteous in the eyes of the world. In others, even grosser vices appear. Christ has given us to us to bear both sin and penalty and to destroy the rule of the devil, sin and death, so we cannot know his blessings unless we recognize our evil. Therefore, our preachers have stressed this in their teaching. They have not introduced any innovations, but have set forth in the Holy Scripture and the the teachings of the Holy Fathers. Wow. That's a really powerful set of paragraphs there. All right. So I think they need to be posted on social media. (laughs) This is what I do. When I find something that I I really find uh, evocative, uh, well, I share it. All right, so there, there you go. That, and you can read a lot more about original sin. That's Article Two, the Apology of the Augsburg Confession. So if you've got some free time, um, that's what you ought to read. Apology Two, paragraphs forty. Yeah, Apology Two. That's enough. All right, so you'll see that on social media. I wish there was a way to make things bold. Is there a way to make things bold on Facebook? Nope. All right, we'll just post it as is then. 
Good. All right. So then our epistle, uh, I think, do we have an option to tomorrow? I'm not sure, but this is the one we'll study for today. Is Hebrews 4. Well, I can check here. Uh, epistle, epistle, epistle. 2 Corinthians 6. So this is the alternate epistle. All right. Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. All right, so this is the key. Uh, immediately after Jesus was baptized, he was driven into the wilderness by the Spirit to be tempted by the devil, right? Why? Because he's fulfilling all righteousness, as um, Jesus says to John um, at his baptism, right? So immediately after baptized, he goes into temptation, right? Just like us. As soon as we're baptized, we're going to fall under the assaults of, of our uh, old Adam, right? Who is at war with that new man that is given to us in baptism. We're going to fall um, torment by the world and all of its vices and shame and um, temptations. And we're going to fall subject to the devil. The devil will attack us day and night, right? Without fail. Because we are baptized. Because we are marked and made um, Christ child in baptism. All right? So same with Jesus. He's thrown out into the wilderness. He's tempted just in the way that we are, right? Um, but Jesus also shows us the way through, right? Which is actually with him. So you see here, he is our high priest who has um, interceded for us, who has been tempted like we are, yet without sin, right? He has grace and, and help, mercy for help in time of need, right? What is the way through temptation? What is the way through the assaults of the devil in our flesh? Forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ. Return to the Lord, for he is gracious and merciful. All right? So, um, it's not so much a moral example, as what, what we'll see tomorrow in the gospel text. Again, the temptation in the wilderness of Jesus. Now, it's actually Jesus defeating the devil for us. <laughs> Finally, uh, he accomplishes that completely and fully by his suffering and death upon the cross. All right? So Jesus is, we'll see Jesus tomorrow as the victor, and we have our victory in him, and that we've been joined to him. All right. Uh, which is actually what the Augsburg Confession says, speaking of Augsburg Confession again, um, in Article 4, let's see if I can find the quote I wanted to read for you. Yeah, Article 4 of the Apology, um, which talks about, it's in the section, we obtain forgiveness of sins only by faith in Christ. All right. So, since Christ is set forth to be the propitiator through whom the Father is reconciled to us, we cannot appease God's wrath by setting forth our own works, right? So, Adam and Eve could not get out of their problem. <laughs> God instead promises them forgiveness through the offspring, right? Through the offspring promised to Eve, the seed. For it is only by faith that Christ is accepted as the mediator, who is the seed, of course. By faith alone, therefore, we obtain the forgiveness of sins when we comfort our hearts with trust in the mercy promised for Christ's sake. Right? That's all Genesis 3, verse 15. The mercy promised for Christ's sake, the seed who will crush the serpent's head. Thus, Paul says in Romans 5, verse 2, through him we have obtained access to the Father. And he adds, through faith. In this way, we are reconciled to the Father and receive forgiveness of sins when we are comforted by when we are comforted by trust in the mercy promised for Christ's sake. Our opponents, Rome, suppose that Christ is the mediator and propitiator because he merited for us the disposition of love. 
And so they would not have us make use of him now as our mediator. Instead, they, as though Christ were completely buried, they imagine that we have access through our own works, by which we merit this disposition, and then through this love have access to God. Does this not bury Christ completely and do away with the whole teaching of faith? Paul, on the other hand, teaches that we have access, that is, reconciliation through Christ. And to show how this happens, he adds that through faith we have access. By faith, that is trust in Jesus, therefore, for Christ's sake, we receive the forgiveness of sins. We cannot set our love or our works against the wrath of God. Right? They won't work. <laughs> They're never enough. Second, it is certain that sins are forgiven because of Christ, the propitiator, according to Romans 3, verse 25, whom God put forward as an expiation, and Paul adds, to be received by faith. So, this propitiator, that's the, the one who offers blood sacrifice, by the way, the propitiator benefits us when by faith we receive the mercy promised in him and set it against the wrath and judgment of God, right? So, we don't claim merits or love of our own, but when when confronted with our sins by the Father, when he says, you have sinned and deserve nothing but wrath and punishment, we say, but for the sake of Christ, you forgive us. All right, we throw Christ back in the Father's face, which he loves to hear. <laughs> he loves it, right? Not when we claim any merit or worth of our own, but when we claim our merit and worth completely as, and uh, from top to bottom in Jesus Christ, right? So just like what we hear, see here in Hebrews 4, right? There's a similar statement in Hebrews 4, 14 to 16. Since then we have a great high priest, let us then with confidence draw near. By bidding us to draw near to God with trust, not in our own merits, but in Christ, the high priest, this statement requires faith. So it is faith alone that justifies because we receive the forgiveness of sins in the Holy Spirit by faith alone. I'm skipping way ahead here. The reconciled are accounted righteous and children of God, not on the account of their own purity, but by mercy on account of Christ if they grasp this mercy by faith. Thus, the scriptures testify that we are accounted righteous by faith. We shall therefore add clear testimonies, etc., etc. All right, so he's going to quote some more stuff. It's a long article, uh, Apology Article 4, or 3, excuse me. Is that right? No, it's Article 4. Yeah, Article 4. Uh, it's really beautiful, and it's worth um, your consideration. Melanchthon does a masterful job. All right. Good. So tomorrow, um, don't look to Jesus as your example. Look to Jesus as your victor. That's what I would say. And what victory does he win? Victory over sin, death, and devil for your sake. And then he gives that to you through his cross when he forgives you your sins. All right. Let's confess our catechism for this week, sacrament of the altar. What is the sacrament of the altar? It is the true body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ under the bread and wine, instituted by Christ himself for us Christians to eat and to drink. Where is this written? The Holy Evangelist Matthew, Mark, Luke, and St. Paul write, Our Lord Jesus Christ, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is given for you, this do in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you. This cup is the New Testament in my blood, which is shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. This do as often as you drink it, in remembrance of me. Who receives the sacrament worthily? Fasting and bodily preparation are certainly fine outward training, but that person is truly worthy and well-prepared who has faith in these words, given and shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. But anyone who does not believe these words or doubts them is unworthy and unprepared 
for the words for you require all hearts to believe. Um, let's actually pray this last prayer here. Lord Jesus, you give us a sweet command that I receive your body and blood frequently. You tell me in the scriptures that as long as I have a body, my sinful flesh will war against the spirit. You tell me in the scriptures that as long as I am in this world, there will be no lack of sin and trouble from those who hate you and your followers. You tell me in the scriptures that the devil will always be around with his lying and murdering, and that he will let me have no peace. Because of these enemies, I have a pressing need for the sacrament, even when I feel no hunger and thirst for it. Your command and encouragement teach me to flee to the sacrament for the promise of forgiveness, of your forgiveness, life, and salvation. Comfort and strengthen and protect me with your body and blood. Amen. We pray. O Lord, mercifully hear our prayers, and having set us free from the bonds of our sins, deliver us from every evil. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. We pray today for faithfulness to the end, for the renewal of those withering in the faith or have fallen away, for pastors as they prepare to administer Christ's holy gifts, and for receptive hearts and minds on the Lord's day. Let us pray to the Lord. Lord, have mercy. We pray today in Thanksgiving with uh, Lacey, who celebrates her birthday, with Greg and Michael, who celebrate their baptism, with our households, Jackie, Jared, and Michelle, Doug and Lisa, Brandon and Valerie, Justin and Doug. Pray for those ill, receiving treatment or recovering, especially Marcella, Bev, Kelsey, Amanda, Dan, Brad, Timothy, and Janice, Ken, Norm, Kathy, and Jim, Mike, and Donna. Pray for our homebound, Bev, Willis, Ed, and Mickey, and Paul. Pray for our mission of the month, Camp Luisimo. We pray in intercession for our relatives, um, that if they are outside the faith, they would come to faith. If they are in the faith, they'd be strengthened in that faith. We pray for our benefactors, especially give thanks to you, all of you who support the work here of this congregation and this ministry. For all this, let us pray to the Lord. Lord, have mercy. Pray the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. I thank you, my Heavenly Father, through Jesus Christ, your dear Son, that you have kept me this night from all harm and danger, and I pray that you would keep me this day also from sin and every evil, that all my doings and life may please you. For into your hands I commend myself, my body and soul, and all things. Let your holy angel be with me, that the evil foe may have no power over me. Amen. Let us bless the Lord. Thanks be to God. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. All right, we've got our hymn in front of us. Um, From Depths of Woe, I Cry to Thee. We're going to actually, we sang it on Ash Wednesday. We've been singing it through the week. Um, We're actually going to sing it tomorrow as well, right? So uh, if that's not immediately apparent, that was intentional. Um, The reason is um, that we want to... uh, well, we want to really commit it to heart. Now, um, I want to actually give you a little bit of a little bit of a background, right? So we're going to do a little bit on the text and on the tune, all right? Because you might wonder about the tune. Uh, it has an interesting tonality to it. And uh, those of you who are at all musically inclined, if you look at the music, you'll notice there's no key signature. Well, there's also not much of a meter either, but there's no meter given, right? So it's it's of a different style, and we'll talk about that. But first, the text. From depths of woe, I cry to thee. The paraphrase. This is a paraphrase of Psalm one thirty. 
which an early source using the Greek numbering is called Psalm 129. And it was written by Martin Luther, 1483-1546, written in 1523 as he was engaged in revising the Latin Mass. In An Order of Mass and Communion for the Church at Wittenberg, 1523, that's a divine order of divine service, we call it uh, settings, right? Luther expressed his desire for, quote, as many songs as possible in the vernacular, German, which the people could sing during Mass, immediately after the gradual, and also after the Sanctus and Agnus Dei, so during distribution. At the same time, he also wrote to poets and theologians, one of whom was George Spalatin, court chaplain to Frederick the Wise, asking him to, quote, to turn a psalm into a hymn as in, as in the enclosed sample of my work, end quote. Presumably, the model enclosed was Luther's, From Depths of Woe I Cry to Thee. Right? So Luther wrote this to be a hymn sung in distribution during the distribution, which is exactly where we're going to do it tomorrow. <laughs> All right. There is a method to my madness. All right. This early metrical psalm of Luther's is important to 21st century Lutherans for several reasons. One, it became one of Luther's favorite songs, expressing the comfort of, of the psalm and the hope that is ours in the gospel. Two, it is a superb, superb explication of the proper distinction between law and the gospel and the doctrine of justification by grace through faith. Agreed. Three, it expresses humanity's deepest sorrow. And for this reason, it was sung at times of mourning, for instance, at the funeral of Luther's protector and patron, Frederick the Wise, in the castle church at Wittenberg on May 9th, 1525, and during Luther's own funeral ceremonies, as his body lay in state in the market church of Our Dear Lady in Halle in 1546. And four, because it is a versification of a penitential psalm. The hymn was commonly used as a catechetical aid to reinforce the meaning of confession as described in Luther's small catechism. All right, Luther's catechetical hymns inspired Johann Sebastian Bach to write uh, choral preludes for organ for each part of the catechism, including a massive six-voice setting of From Depths of Woe, Be Uve 686. Six, eight, yeah, I have to go find BWV 686. This is giving me many more things to do today. <laughs> That's okay. AWA 6A6. Uh, songs. There they are. See all. Oh, yeah. Look at that. Prelude and Fugue. All right. Six voice setting. All right. Um, let's see. What's next? What was I going to read next? Oh, yes. Luther's service book has affirmed this penitential nature of the, of the hymn by placing it in the confession absolution section. All right. Um, oh, I, I typed the wrong number. That's why. 686. There we go. Found it. I'll see for note. 686. All right. So I can listen to that when I'm done here. Um, its usage, however, was not limited to times of confession or to funerals. It is also used as an intro, a psalm hymn, a gradual between the lessons, a hymn before the sermon during various seasons of the church year, according to, uh, uh, Lever in his book on Luther. All right, now to the tune. I told you the tune is interesting. Luther's plaintive melody is in the Phrygian mode, and it is in the common bar form of the German Renaissance, right? Which is, that's, it's not metrical, not meaning it came out of bars, which is some ignorant thing that somebody said, and then it caught on. All right. Um, it, which begins with the two-phrase section, the Stolen, that is repeated, and then followed by a concluding section, the Abgesang, resulting in the form stolen, stolen, abgesan, A-A-B, A-A-B. 
Got to do some German here. The melody is shaped by the opening lines of the hymn, and for the re- this reason is a superb example of the marriage of text and tune. The tune is easily taught to the congregation by having a contour or choir perform stanzas in alternation. When sung unaccompanied, the plaintive beauty of the tune is wonderfully captured. The opening descending fifth on depths, right? German Tiefer plunges from the fifth scale tone to the first, only to rise again to the starting note and then on to woe in the lower sixth degree, a defining feature of the Phrygian mode. All right, so you know major and minor, those are two modes. There's other modes, all right? Depends on where they start relative to the dominant, to the, to the tonic, I should say. Anyway, you don't have to know music theory here. Phrygian. The most characteristic feature of a melody in the Phrygian mode, however, is the lowered second degree. So it's the flat second, which occurs in the final descending cadence. So, uh, 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 yeah, GFE, that's right, of both the stolen and the omkazong. The, in the Amgazang, the melody effectively reaches a high D twice before descending to the final cadence. The original melody contains a fine syncopation where the Amgazang first reaches the high D, which unfortunately is not included in the LSB version. Uh, uh, uh. To craft this mel- his melody, Luther was inspired by both compositional techniques of the day and melodic chant formulas, which he was well acquainted. It is not surprising that Luther's favorite composer, Johann or Joaquin de, de Prez, oh, I love Joaquin, he's beautiful stuff, composed a motet on Psalm 130, De Profundis Clamavi Ad Te Domine, in Latin, which is centered in the Phrygian mode in which each of the four voices descends a fifth on the word profundus. Ah, so who got it first, Luther or de Prez? I don't know, de Prez. All right, so this is the hymn of the day for Ash Wednesday and for Trinity 21. And it's used in the intro. It's for Advent 4 and Trinity 22. can be sung, uh, appointed on Lent 5, etc. All right. So, from depths of woe, I cry to thee. Um, we'll sing it tomorrow for our distribution. Um, Lord be with you all. Keep you safe. We'll see you again tomorrow. All right. 930, Divine Service. <laughs>